All right, if you would, grab a Bible. Let's turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts 1. We'll begin our uh, time of study here in uh, that place, Acts chapter 1. Good to see you this morning. We have visitors with us. Thank you for being here. Uh, To everyone, it seems that you successfully sprang forward, so good work with that. For those who didn't spring forward, we'll see them about an hour. But uh, good to see you this morning, and we're appreciative appreciative of uh, our visitors that we have. I want you to know that uh, this is the second Sunday morning of the month, which means this is traditionally our Q&A time. I I say tradition because I guess we've been doing it long enough to call it a tradition, right? Uh, So uh, Q&A. Uh, For the uninitiated here is where you have previously submitted questions to me uh, and asked me things about certain passages or certain topics that I've taken some time to study and formulate a response that I'm going to present in this time. So we're not going back and forth and doing the press conference thing, uh, but it's something where we're going to study from Scripture and I'm going to say some things. And if I do raise more questions, feel free to write them down and give them to me and maybe that'll be a a future uh, Q&A morning. Uh, Acts chapter 1 and verse 21. Acts 1 and verse 21, it says, So one of the men who have accompanied us, this is Peter speaking, during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So the question springs from this text. The question is, uh, should we cast lots, like in Acts one twenty six, and then kind of uh, secondary to that, or... In addition to that, along the same topic, does God send omens? The idea of God communicating in kind of different ways. And uh, so I've spent a good chunk of my week trying to figure out how on earth I could answer a question like that. So here we go. So first of all, I think we need to understand what's going on in Acts 1, which is the idea that the apostles are choosing someone who will be counted as one of the 12 apostles. And this is a replacement for Judas. And they choose the man, they, they get two men that they have uh, vetted, vetted, so to speak, to where they're at the point where they say either one of these men fits the, the conditions or qualifications, but they don't choose between them, instead they cast lots. And there is something else that I think is important to point out besides just the casting of lots, that is in verse 24, they pray, you Lord know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. So the casting of lots, they believe to be God showing them which of the two, God behind the falling of the lots. So the question is, is that the way we should do things and make decisions today? Lots are very common in the Bible, but particularly they're common in the Old Testament. In fact, this is the only example I could find of New Testament Christians casting lots. The only other reference in the New Testament of casting lots is where the uh, soldiers cast lots for Jesus' clothes as he is, is crucified. But we're not really sure what the lots were. Uh, It's possible that there were different objects that were all called lots. Some say they might have been like dice, okay, where you have different sides that come up. Uh, Some think it's kind of like the short straw idea where you have a number of straws, you can't see how long they are, and you pick one. But, But all of those have the same basic idea, which is there are ways of choosing things that appear to be random. So... It's not as if you can game the system. Instead, you get a random selection. 
there were lots that the high priest kept in the Old Testament called the Urim and the Thummim. If you're ever reading in the Old Testament, which we've been doing in, in our daily devotionals, and you come across the Urim and the Thummim, uh, this is the idea of, of lots that were kept in the vestments of the high priest. And they appear to have been used to answer yes or no questions. We're not really sure what they were or how they worked, but it appears that if you asked yes or no and then you drew one, you would get a yes or no answer. So there are a lot of times where in the Old Testament they inquire of the Lord. You see that phrase, inquiring of the Lord, and they'll talk to the priest, and the priest evidently uses the Urim and Thummim. We'll talk more about that in just a second. Although sometimes it appears that Jehovah just doesn't answer. Okay, so I don't know what that means in terms of the Urim and Thummim. Does that mean that it's inconclusive? Do they do, you know, best five out of ten? I don't know how that works. Uh, but there is something there uh, with lots and uh, that kind of thing. But we know what these things are like. We have similar things. Today, I think probably the most common and kind of innocuous would be flipping a coin. I can't decide two things, so I flip a coin. It, it's supposed to be purely random, okay? But that idea of uh, allotting things and making decisions. All right, so uh, what were lots used for in the Bible? First of all, lots were used to divide things. This seems to be the motivation for them casting lots for Jesus' clothes, right? Uh, when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. So just random, you get it, you don't, you know, that kind of idea of chance. Uh, so uh, I want to go to Joshua 18 and show you that this is actually a, a very important uh, scene in the history of Israel where lots were integral to how things played out for the nation. Joshua chapter 18. All right, so this is where Joshua is beginning to divide the land between the people. Uh, and you remember they go into the land and they conquer the land, but as they do, they're dividing it up between the different tribes. Each tribe is going to have their own set of land, their own parcel. Uh, Joshua 18 and verse 6, And you shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the description here to me, and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. The Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. And Gad, excuse me, Gad and Reuben and half the tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan eastward, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. So the men arose and went, and Joshua charged those who went to write the description of the land, saying, Go up and, write, up and down in the land and write a description and return to me, and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went and passed up and down in the land and wrote in a book a description of it by towns in seven divisions. Then they came to Joshua at the camp at Shiloh, and Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua apportioned the land to the people of Israel to each his portion. And so sometimes it will say, the lot fell to so-and-so. Okay, and to that tribe, they divided it by lots. That, that's supposed to be something that is about an even distribution without any favoritism. It's not as if one tribe gets better land because they're different in some way, but lots then divide things in a fair way. So uh, lots were used to divide things. You also have this happening in Nehemiah where one out of every 10 people, the one that the lot fell on out of every 10, had to live in Jerusalem because, remember, Jerusalem was under a lot of um, pressure at that time and they had just rebuilt the walls. They need to repopulate the city. And so that is, uh, that's one use of that was dividing things. Lots were also used for inquiring of the Lord. I mentioned this already. This is not done with typical lots. This is done with the special lots called the Urim and the Thummim. 
Uh, this is Exodus 28:30. In the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. This is Numbers 27, 21. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, at his word they shall come in, both he and the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. Talking about Joshua there, but the idea of uh, going after the going to the priest and then asking them for judgment from God by inquiring of the Lord in the Urim. What's interesting about the Urim and the Thummim, the idea of inquiring of the Lord, is that it, it really seems to stop around the time of Saul, the very beginning of the kingdom. We don't read references to the Urim and the Thummim after that, except there is a, an allusion or two in Ezra and Nehemiah. So you have this huge gap of time, which is basically the monarchy, and then the divided kingdoms, where now you don't have the same inquiring of the Lord by lot. So that, that leads to a lot of questions. It's kind of like the Ark of the Covenant. You know, you kind of say, well, here's the Ark of the Covenant all the time, and then all of a sudden there is no Ark. And you say, well, what happened? Well, we don't really know, but maybe this is something that is destroyed, or maybe it just falls out of favor. It seems to me likely that this gives way to the practice of asking a prophet, a prophet who can speak to God and get an answer from God so that there's really no need in the same way to inquire of the priests by lots. But I want to be clear about this. When you read the phrase inquiring of the Lord in the Old Testament, I want you to remember that everyday Israelites didn't get to do this. This wasn't where everyday Israelites say, you know what, I wonder if I should go into this business venture. I'll just throw the dice. That's not the way they lived. This was instead something that on very special occasions, people who had access to the priest, I'm thinking particularly of leaders in Israel, are able to say, let's see God's will about this. But uh, it's not that Israelites just casted lots to see what God wanted. You don't really see that in the Old Testament. Lots were also used for choosing people. Uh, let's go to 1 Samuel 10. 1 Samuel 10. So I want you to remember that Saul was already chosen by God before this. In 1 Samuel 9, Samuel anoints Saul as the first king. But there seems to be a kind of ceremony that Samuel wants to do in front of all the people that involves lots. 1 Samuel 10 and verse 20. 1 Samuel 10, 20, Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the, the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. Saul is taken by Lot. I think there's a little bit of ceremony here. They say, well, who is the guy God wants? And so you throw the lots, and then, oh, it just so happens to be a Benjamin. Benjamin's the tribe God wants. And then you get the family and the clan, and then you get Saul. Now, I do not know how they cast lots to discover he was in the baggage. In fact, that makes me wonder if Samuel, after all, is a prophet. Maybe Samuel had some kind of special, uh, he's also a priest, which might give him some kind of access to the Urim and Thummim. I don't know. But in some way, Samuel, uh, they know that, uh, that he was hidden in the baggage. But the idea is that God chose Saul 
and lots were used or at least shown to be a part of choosing people. Let me give you a reference to another story. I'm not gonna, we're not going to turn there. Do you remember in the story of Jonah? Jonah runs from Jehovah. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He goes on a ship to Tarshish. There starts to be a big storm. And do you remember what those sailors do? They cast lots to see whose fault is this. They said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell upon Jonah. Jonah 1.7. So Jonah is the guy. How do they know? You see behind this, there is not just the idea that it's random. It just so happened to happen this way. It's that God is behind the casting of the lots. So that God shows this is the God. God sort of maneuvers this in the way that he wants it to go. So that Saul's name, Saul's family, Saul's clan, Saul's tribe all come up. In the same way, Jonah, I mean, there must have been at least more than a handful of sailors on the boat. But Jonah's name comes up because Jonah's the problem. And there is the implication that God is behind the casting of the lots. That happens in other cases too. It happens when Saul and Jonathan are sort of at odds because Saul makes a rash vow. Jonathan happens to eat some honey and they, t- they cast lots to figure out whose fault is this. And it turns out that the lot falls on Jonathan. There is one more scene. It does not specify lots, but it's the same basic process. After the children of Israel attack Jericho and they're told don't take anything and then they lose the next battle at the battle of Ai and so they know something is wrong and they start casting lots. Well, It just says, this is the way the text reads, Judah is taken. Just says taken. Doesn't say what that means. And then Zerah is taken, and then Zabdi is taken, and then the man named Achan is taken. I assume that lots are involved in this. And what Joshua does, he does not say, well, I hope we got this lot system right. He goes directly to Achan and he says, tell me what you've done assuming that God had led them to the right man who was the cause of the problem. So lots were involved in the Old Testament in choosing people and discovering, you know, what exactly someone had done or how somebody could be the person God was indicating. Lots were also used for making decisions. I'm going to put a couple of Proverbs on the board here. Proverbs have some things to say about lots. Uh, The lot, it says, puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. Puts an end to quarrels. So we have an argument and we cast lots and then the argument ends. And then there is the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. I think in this sense, lots are used when reason is exhausted. You know, we've tried to argue it out. We've tried to figure it out. We've tried to decide between two courses. Have you ever had a decision in your life that was so difficult because you had all the pros and cons on one side and all the pros and cons on the other? You just didn't know which way to go. Well, the Bible is saying, Proverbs is saying, that that may be a way to settle between two good people or two good options. In that sense, it would be, like I said, the equivalent of flipping a coin. And there is also this implication that I think you've seen throughout the process, right? Whether it's Acts 1, whether it's these uh, examples of choosing people, that, that God is behind it. It's every decision is from the Lord. All right, so lots were not. I want to say this very clearly. Lots were not the same as divination or omens. There is a lot said in the ancient world and in the Old Testament about divination and omens. It was very common for ancient peoples to try to figure out the will of the gods by different means. Maybe that was mediums who were going to try to speak to the dead. 
Maybe that was pagans who would try to uh, tear open an animal and read the entrails or read the organs of the animal and try to divine the will of the gods from that. That's not what lots were. Please don't confuse this as just the Israelite version of what all the ancient peoples did. I want you to go with me to Deuteronomy 18, and I'll show you why I say that. Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18 and verse 9. It says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable, abominable practices of these, those nations. There shall not be found among, among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. That's a pretty exhaustive list, isn't it? It's like he's saying, just so I don't miss anybody, let me get all of them. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. So you see all of these areas that are associated with paganism, divination, sorcery, necromancy, talking to the dead, dealing with the dead. He says, that's not the way I want you to serve me or think about this. Casting lots is different from that. It doesn't say anything about casting lots. Casting lots is very common, as we've seen. This is different. So the idea that this was just the Hebrew equivalent of that is misguided. Lots also were not a replacement for revelation. We have to acknowledge that even with everything we've covered, and, and there are other examples of casting lots that I've not been able to cover, that the use of lots was remarkably rare. Only on a few occasions were they used and only by certain people at certain times. And I think that we might get a false impression based on what we've already studied. And the false impression would be that Jewish religion was one where people were just constantly talking to God and rolling the dice and say, God, help me, tell me, show me. That's not the really, really the way for the average person the Jewish religion worked. Please remember that these were extremely rare cases, and most people in the time of the Bible lived just like we do. That is, they lived without any direct word from God. They did not have God talking in their ear. They did not have God guiding their every motion. They had revelation from God. They listened to the revelation, and they tried to follow it. So what that means is lots or the idea of God guiding is never a replacement for revelation. Revelation is the primary way God deals with people. That was true in the Old Testament, and it continues to be true for Christians. Also, lots were not a replacement for wise choices. So what God does is he gives the people the law, and he gives the people proverbs, and he gives the people prophets, and then he expects them to take that body of information and make wise choices. We still have to do that. And lots are not, well, I don't know if this is good or bad or right or wrong. I'll just throw the dice and let God decide. God instead tells us and expects us to make wise choices with the information that we have. So let's not think that lots were a way everybody just went about everyday life because they had to wrestle with tough things just like you and I do. 
that's not going to change just because of the idea of Lot. So let's go back to Acts 1. I know that it's been a while since we were thinking about Acts 1. We've gone on quite a little journey here. So what's happened in Acts 1 is that Judas has killed himself, and there is concern because of his place. Peter is concerned Judas has forfeited his place. Acts 1 and verse 17, he talks about he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And in verse 20, he quotes from Psalms, May his camp be desolate, let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So he believes they should select someone else out of, out of the, the group of disciples to be one of the twelve. And the problem here is that they have two good options. Two good options. Two good men. Two men who are with them from the beginning. Two men who were witnesses of the resurrection. Well, what do you do when you have two good options? How do you choose? Well, it might be detrimental to pit them against each other. We, we like to do this in America. Like Drew talked about the other night, we're all about competition. And so, you know, we, well, let's get the best one. But really, that's not going to be very good because then you're going to end up tearing down a really good person. It's not really good to pit them against each other and say, well, which one is better? So you try to choose in a way that is neutral. And biblically speaking, one way you do that is to cast lots. So they ask God to help them decide, and they trust that since God has power over all of life, his choice is going to happen when they cast the lots. So I take what is happening in Acts 1 to be the equivalent of when you have two good choices. I, I, some of you have probably had this happen with, uh, with job choices. You have one job that's a good job, it's where you want to be, you like it, and then you have another job that's also good. And so you have, well, maybe, maybe there's some of these things that are a little bad and some of these things are a little bad, but, but on the whole, you can't decide. I've had that happen when uh, I had opportunities to preach the gospel and you have, you have a congregation here and a congregation here. How do you decide? Well, if I do this, I I'm, know I'm, I'm doing the Lord's will. If I do this, I know I'm doing the Lord's will. How do you decide between two good things? And what they decide to do is to leave it to chance and trust that what happens is part of God's will. So let me say, I'll just be frank about how I feel about taking Acts 126 as a normal course of action for decision-making. First of all, God has not given us any promises or assurances about this. Hey, you throw the dice and I'll be there. He has not said that. So I can't guarantee that when I flip a coin or I roll the dice that that's God's will, that I know God's will because whatever happens is God's will. I am very cautious about saying something like that is God's will without some indicator from something I know from Scripture. Second thing is, God has always primarily revealed His will through His Word, except in extreme and rare cases. And since I don't see anyone in Scripture putting their whole future into the roll of the dice or the casting of the lot, I would not encourage that. I could not encourage that and feel like I was being responsible as a teacher. But on the other hand, I also can't put God in a box and say God couldn't do something or wouldn't do something. Because that would be me speaking for God again in a way that, that he just hasn't spoken. That's his business. The way I fall out in this question is that I just get to the bottom line and say, it seems important to me that we say God has always primarily communicated through his word. 
And that is the tool that we should use and go to when we have to make tough choices. And so we need to put our focus where God puts our focus. That's the best I can do with uh, Acts 126 and the casting of lots. All right, I've got another question. Does that really say? Wow, okay. Uh, My other question is, why is it okay for Jacob to be dishonest? Is God angry at him? Let's go to Genesis 27. Genesis 27. This This question comes from our daily devotional readings. By the way... If you want to get to the head of the Q&A line, which there is quite a line at this stage, this is a great way to do it. Ask me about our devotional readings, and I'll move you right up to the top of the line. In fact, this was on my list for last month because we were going through it last month, uh, but I didn't get to it in the Q&A last month. So it seemed to me as we're reading through the stories of people like Abraham and Jacob and their families that we should talk a little bit about the flaws and weaknesses of the people that we're reading about. So this question comes from that. Genesis 27, verse 5. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. It's a dirty little story. Rebekah is plotting against her other son and her husband. And Jacob is right along with her, except Jacob's, his concerns are all practical. Like, what if he happens to feel me and he knows I'm not as hairy as Esau? Well, Rebecca's got an answer for that, too. Uh, they put goat's hair on him. <clears throat> Excuse me. Rebecca pressures Jacob to lie to Isaac because he's blind. And then Jacob outright lies. If you see it in the story here, uh, verse 18, uh, he begins to even invoke Jehovah's name. In verse 20, uh, this is definitely by, by the Lord. This is definitely, I'm definitely your son Esau. So the, then the, the question becomes, okay, that's, a, that's an ugly story. He's lying, they're deceiving, and they're stealing. But then God uses this as an opportunity to bless Jacob. Jacob is blessed because he lies. There's a direct correlation because he lies to get the blessing. Yet, this is something that had been prophesied before Jacob was even born. If you remember the story... God says that the older is going to serve the younger. And I just want to say there is a broader story here than just Jacob and Esau. We read about the sins and poor judgment of a whole bunch of people in the Old Testament. And we've gotten through a lot of these. We're going to get to a lot more as we go through the Old Testament. I'm talking about Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I'm talking about Moses and David. And many of those stories are told completely without comment, like the story of Rahab or the story of the Egyptian midwives or the story of uh, Samson. So I think on the one hand, if God didn't tell us about these people's flaws, we would kind of be upset about that, wouldn't we? We would say, oh, I'm nothing like Jacob. He was just a superhuman. He's just better than the rest of us. But when he does tell us about their flaws, then we say what? Oh, why would, you, why would you ever favor a person like that? So, 
I mean, what can God do, right? They're either too good or too bad. I think that we understand that they're regular people like we are, a mixture of good and bad, some good choices, some bad choices, and all of us can relate in both of those directions. But I think we need to say something even more here about why God chose certain people to advance his plan. And I want to say this clearly. I wish I had more time to develop this. God didn't choose these people because they were better than other people. Abraham was not better than other people. He was not blameless. Isaac was not better than Ishmael. Jacob was not better than Esau. Judah was not better than Reuben. Israel was not better than other nations. In fact, God says specifically to Israel, I didn't choose you because of your righteousness. You are not better. In fact, he says instead, it's because of the wickedness of the nations. So they were bad. You're not any better. God's got his own reasons, but he says specifically, it's not about you. It's about me. It's about my choices. So God gets to choose And he gets to choose for his own reasons without regard to how we think about it. Would we make the same choices? I don't know. I don't know if I had access to the information God has, if I would make God's choices. That's kind of immaterial, isn't it? God, excuse me, God makes choices that are what God believes would be best for the world. I want to say this too. Uh, When we talk about Jacob and Esau, when we talk about Pharaoh that we've been working through his story... Sometimes we confuse things where we begin to think that if God uses someone or doesn't bless them or their nation is taken over, we tend to equate that with their personal salvation. Like Pharaoh, we talk a lot about Pharaoh hardening his heart. And God hardened Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardened his heart. Well, it's obvious that Scripture says both of those happen, but... But that's not really about Pharaoh's ultimate salvation. That's about how Pharaoh is dealing with God and his people in this policy situation. It seems to me that we very regularly, whether it's Jacob or Esau, we begin to think, well, this means he's lost forever or saved forever, and God God just chose them randomly. And I don't think that's what's happening. I think this is about how God is arranging his world in a way that is his will. But I just want to really stress that when we read stories about Jacob and his dishonesty, or we read stories about Abraham and his dishonesty, or we read stories about Moses murdering someone, it is important that we remember that the New Testament teaches us that we are not better than other people. God did not choose us because we are better. That is the whole point. We simply believe. Jesus teaches us to believe, to say we are unprofitable servants. We merely respond to God. We merely follow him. Paul says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. We have compassion on others, Paul says, because we ourselves were once deceived and hateful and hating one another. So God can work within or in spite of our sin. So I know that God hates dishonesty, but dishonesty doesn't stop his plan. And that's what I see in the story of Jacob. God can use that dishonesty. In fact, I see God working on Jacob's dishonesty by having somebody lie to him quite a bit. You remember the story of Laban and how Laban tricks the trickster and Jacob is changed. I think Jacob feels the sting of what he's done. 
But the goal of these texts is not to see how righteous these people were. The goal of these texts is to praise the God who used their lives to weave it into something that ultimately achieved his purposes. All right, thank you so much for your attention. Uh, We'll leave it there and we'll be dismissed for our classes.